You are listening to the Pursuit of Manliness podcast, where we are vigorously equipping men to pursue biblical manliness. For more information about the Pursuit of Manliness or find out about the herd, make sure you visit thepursuitofmanliness.com. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for Ayn. I thank you for his family. Uh, As we're going to talk about tonight, I believe at some point, you are a God of divine appointments. You put people in our life at just the right time in just the right season. It's not an accident. You are constantly working um, ahead of us. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says, you are a God who declares the end from the beginning. And as we get further on in this journey of life, we certainly can see that. And I pray for, for Ein in our conversation that what we're going to talk about, God, number one, that it brings glory to you. Uh, but number two, I just believe there's some guys that need to hear this. There's some guys who are going to need this this encouragement. They're going to need to be reminded of how sovereign and providential you are. And I pray it's a it's an encouragement to them, whether they're driving in their vehicle, they're listening in their AirPods as they're running down the road or at their kid's soccer game, wherever they're at. God, I pray you just meet them right where they're at. And as we say, you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, men, at this time, I want to welcome Ein No to the Pursuit of Mailiness podcast. Ein, thank you for being a guest on the show today. You're welcome. Ein, I, I had the pleasure of getting to know you a number of years ago when I served in Iowa and uh, got to know your story, and we're certainly going to unpack that a little bit. Uh, would you just take a moment before we dive into this, just introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, um, my name is Ein Ngo. Um, I was born in Vietnam and uh, came to state when I was about 17. So now I live in Iowa. That's about as good as it gets. You're living in Iowa. You're living in God's <laughs> country. <laughs> yeah. Corn yeah. and sunshine sometimes. And, you know, you're married. You just, you just married off one of your kids just the other day. So yeah. busy season. They're both married now both married you made it yeah. you made it hey i uh as i talked to you the other night i i was reminded by um the dad of the daughter that your son married uh, of your story that you had shared i've heard it before uh man i we believe uh, uh, our god is sovereign and providential constantly going before us and when he was reminding me of that i was like yeah that's something yeah. our guys need to hear so would you just kind of begin to share your story about where you're from and the mm-hmm. journey to get here yeah yeah, when um, um, Tim was sharing, was uh, making the the um, speech at the wedding, uh, kind of remind me that it's just crazy how how God should put everything together. Um, so I was born in 1971. Uh, so just uh, three years before, three or four years before. Um, Vietnam War is over. So um, I, I, I didn't remember a lot, but I think toward the end of the war, I remember a little bit, but um, I can remember that my uncle was um, carrying my mom and I on a motorbike and we were uh, evacuating, evacuating a town where we were living. Um, I don't remember all the details. I remember uh, we almost went over a cliff because of too many crazy uh, traffic things. I remember looking at a, sitting in front of the motorcycle 
that he is the driver. I sit in front of him and my mom sitting behind him. Uh, and then they, there's like luggage in the back. So I can see down the cliff that we were gonna go over and he was trying hard to push it back. Uh, but then he couldn't get off the bike because of my mom and the luggage in the back, but some miracle <laughs> we was able to get out of it. Um, so it's not a lot of stuff I remember about the war. Um, so it didn't really traumatize me too bad. But the reason that my mom was with my uncle was because my dad uh, served in South Vietnam uh, Army. So he, he's uh, in the front line. So, um, so my mom doesn't, for most, for, most, for most of their marriage life, uh, when I was born, my mom would travel with my dad wherever he go. Uh, when he um, would go to, he's an artil artillery guy. So the big gun, they should pull it up to somewhere near near the front line and then they should shoot from there. So he doesn't really have to be very close, but um, he's one of those guys, he, he told me that as soon as <laughs> the enemy shoot at him, he's supposed to stand up to find out where <laughs> it's coming from. And before it hit the ground, he need to, uh, he need to um, protect himself, uh, dug out, and then as soon as it explodes, he had to stand back up and, and look where it landed and figure out where it's shooting from, and he can calculate the different the uh, angle to to uh, fire back. So anyway, um, so that's my mom would travel with him, and uh, so she believed that wherever he is, she need to be with him. So. Uh, we, we, uh, until the fighting was really fierce, and that's when he told my mom to take me uh, away, uh, take um, further south because less fighting is there. Anyway, um, so, and then my dad get caught, uh, get taken prisoner of war. So he took to, he was taken to refugee camp. Um, and my mom didn't know where he was for, for a long time uh, because there was no record of him being arrested. And the, the road where he, there's only one road out of that uh, battlefield and there was so many people get killed that um, people just didn't know if he survived. Um, she went back to look for him, but she couldn't find him. Um, but later we find out that uh, they've taken him into the jungle and put him in a, uh, what they call the re-education camp there. So he was gone. Um, Viet the war was over. My mom uh, moved back to our hometown. She lived with my uh, grandmother. Then I grew up um, in the communist country, uh, go to school. Um, become the what they call the Ho Chi Minh youth. <laughs> so everybody was doing it. It didn't know any different. Um, but I noticed that um, my family was treated differently because uh, of what my dad um, supporting South Vietnam. Um, so uh, every family have record that the government kept and. On there, they would show that your father was 
um, the supporter of South Vietnam. And because of that, a lot of kids like me are, um, are not, um, typically don't get to go to college. But we welcome to do everything else uh, that the Ho Chi Minh youth got to do. So um, it, I think growing up, we didn't know any different. Uh, we thought everything is normal, but uh, my mom knows that this is not normal because she she's used to uh, the freedom that she had before. Um, so she should do what she can to survive. Some of this, the story was like, when we were young, finally she find out where, where they took my dad and we would try to go visit him. Uh, I, I was little, um, but we would take buses to a small town and then we would walk all day into the wood. And then, and then they would, and then you would ask them if, if we can see my dad. And if they say no, we'd walk back and then go home. But so we don't get to see him very often. But eventually they, they release him under the Geneva Convention. And he came home, but he couldn't, he couldn't travel anywhere. He had to stay in town. And um, some of the story that I don't remember, I don't know about it when I was there, but my dad tell, uh, told me that um, the government people would come often at night to harass him and um, questioning him about whether or not he's still involved with uh, the rebellions or things like that. So uh, a lot of things that I grew up at, I, that I get sheltered from, I didn't know. Uh, um, and just a few things like I mentioned that uh, people like my family, we, we don't have their, uh, we um, don't get the opportunity that other family that served North Vietnam would get, you know, the kids that didn't get the grade, but because their family was on the right side, so therefore um, they get the, um, the easy path. So, um, so I, uh, in 1987, I was 15 years old. Um, I was in the 11th grade. Uh, and you know, back then growing up, you hear a lot of people leaving Vietnam. They either uh, pay somebody, took a boat and then should head it out to sea and hopefully you will hit land somewhere. A lot of time people just doesn't know where they're going. So, um, and then, you know, most of the time the fishing boat is doesn't equip with you know navigation or um, and the and the equipment is not very well. So sometimes the engine should die and they should float at sea. And there's a lot of people you know just die from it. But I heard you know there's a lot of people left Vietnam. But you know I've never thought that you know that I would get a, a chance to do that. But one day. Um, my uncle came and talked to uh, my parents. And then my parents talked to me. They pulled me into my bedroom and said, um, hey, your uncle is leaving. Um, did you want to go with him? And so I was like, well, I was 15. I didn't know any different. But I thought it was uh, 
oh, it'd be fun to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, but, you know, different. So, um, but it's a hush hush kind of thing. You don't, uh, you don't let any, you don't tell anybody. Uh, so like um, Christmas, Christmas Eve, my uncle was playing music for a church. Uh, we we go to a Catholic church. I grew up Catholic, and most people in my town was Catholic. So um, he he played for that uh, uh, Christmas celebration, and then the next morning we get on the bus and and we headed uh, for uh, Ho Chi Minh City, or they call Saigon. It's about three or four hours by bus. Um, you get on the bus. Uh, my grandma didn't know we left. Nobody knew we left except for my parents. Uh, my grandma actually didn't know that we left for like a month later or something. <laughs> um, but the, the story was that we should go down to, to Ho Chi Minh City to, um, or Saigon to get some treatment. Both my uncle and I was having some kind of... Uh, um, uh, nose issued we uh, must be some kind of allergy that we uh, that we had but um, we are having some time having a hard time breathing uh, through our nose so so we typically go down there um, every so often to to visit because they have a better hospital there so but this time we went down there we stay with my um, my aunt family and um, and then my uncle left me there and then he went and visit uh, this person that um, he run a network that he will take people out the country. Um, so that afternoon he came back and we said, oh, they're ready for us. So we, we leave. So that day he, um, that person took my uncle and I to another town. Um, it's a little closer to Cambodia. So we stay there overnight. Um, so everything is secret. Um, we, we stay in this, um, well, back then in Vietnam, they don't have hotel or motel, but a lot of people have uh, that have a house or something that have a, a spare bedroom. They would, they would put a sign up on their house that there's room um, for you to stay. So we would stay in, in one of those houses. And um, you, you don't want to go outside because, you know, people notice that you're from out of town or things like that. So when it's dark, we go out and we get uh, something to eat. But other than that, we just stay in the house. And then the next morning, really early in the morning, um, so this guy brought over two, um, two uh, driver with motorbike. And, and, um, I get on to one of them in on the gas tank. I sit on the gas tank. So I'm not as big as I, I am now. I'm 15. I didn't grow. I didn't grow like until I, I'm in the refugee camp or something. I, so I was like five foot, maybe uh, skinny. I sit on the uh, front of the tank. My uncle sit in the back, the driver in the middle. And then the other uh, motorcycle have the driver and the guy that that were helping us out. So it was early morning, um, really early. Uh, I would say 4 a.m. It's still dark outside. 
Um, and then so then they, they would just take off into the, the jungle um, to narrow path like this. And what I was told was that these are the paths that they usually uh, ride, fly to border town, get all the good that you typically can't get in Vietnam because it banned. And then they, they bring it back to sell it. So it like, this is their trip to the border. So we, uh, so that guy paid them and they, they took us. So they, they drive like crazy weaving through this wood. <laughs> and I swear, we gonna, they, they didn't stop for anything. There's like chickens and pigs on the road and they just hit them and knock them over. They didn't stop uh, until like morning time. Uh, we got to Cambodia. And then there's a river, we cross a river. There was like people there, but they didn't ask, they didn't say anything. And I know they're Cambodian because uh, they speak different language. Um, so we, we cross the river, we get on the boat. So this guy, he, he know Cambodian, so he talked to them and, and get us through. So we sit on the boat and then that boat took us all the way to Phnom Penh, which is Cambodia capital. So during this time, um, so be before this time, uh, Vietnam was invading Cambodia, Vietnam army, Vietnamese army invaded Cambodia. They were fighting uh, Pol Pot army. So uh, they was fighting many years, uh, but then by the time, so in 1987, that's around the time when the UN ordered Vietnam, Vietnamese army to, um, to withdraw from Cambodia. So Cambodia became this country that doesn't really have a government. There's a lot of local guys trying to take over, but nobody really asks you any question. And then so we get into Phnom Penh and then they put us in this um, safe house, I guess. And then there's other people that, that they took there before us also wait there. Uh, and then, um, so that night we stay there, uh, went to bed early and early in the morning, uh, this guy hand us over to a couple of ex-Vietnamese soldiers. So this guy, uh, they already, um, they still have their uniform on. They don't have uh, guns anymore, but they, they look like they're soldiers. So then they was able to just go through Cambodia without a lot of people asking them why they're there. So we were with them, so nobody really asked us why we're there either. So, um, so we would uh, travel to um, an, a shore shoreline, like an ocean, um, and then we bore a boat, and that boat took us all the way to a town near border of Cambodia, uh, near border of Thailand. So Cambodia and Thailand. We get there. Uh, they hire us again into this house um, because it, it during the day we couldn't go outside. Um, and then so there also there's other, a few more people waiting for us there too. So there's about five, six of us. And then there's a boat driver. So my uncle and this guy was fixing the engine for the boat because it's leaking gas everywhere. <laughs> they don't have anything new. It was fixing this boat with propeller. It's an open boat, you know, it's, probably 
15, 16 feet long. It's open. Uh, and then it should have a propeller in the back. So uh, my uncle and that guy was spending, I don't know how however, however many hours to fix it. And I remember they take a bar of soap, they run it underneath the tank and hoping that it would seal up some of the hole to keep it from uh, leaking gas. And then, um, so they finally fix it. The engine start, they said, time to go. So then they, they hand everybody Vietnamese soldier uniform to put on. So including me and and my uncle was like, nobody's gonna believe he's a <laughs> he's a soldier. So they told me to uh, to lay down uh, on the on the bottom of the boat so nobody can see me, and then they start taking off. Um, so we were in kind of in this bay area. It's a fishing village. There's not a lot of people. Uh, so, um, so we we get uh, we get on the boat. We start leaving. We about maybe five minutes from shore, and then this speeding boat was chasing after us and start shooting. Uh, and um, come close to us and pull tell us to pull over to the shore. So then we get on shore. We were all scared. We didn't know what is going on. And they push it behind the, the bushes so nobody can see. And then they take all the stuff that we have, put it there, and then start going through them, trying to find um, anything valuable. Um, so most of the people that snuck out the country like me will bring gold. Back then in Southeast Asia, the, the one commonality between all the country is gold. So you can bring gold and trade it to get the money there. So you can do it. So most, most of the time people travel with gold. So I think that's what they were looking for. So I was sitting there, they started going through other people and I sit next to this woman and she said, I, my mom give me a gold ring so that when I get to Thailand, I can, I can sell it. And she said, take the ring out and swallow it. So before they get to me, I took the ring out, I squeeze it so then it folded, and then I swallow it. And they didn't they didn't see me doing that. So they, you know, they didn't do anything to me. They searched through everything and they they find a few things and then um, they left us there. They took the woman with them. And we were all shaking up. We didn't know what to do. Um, and it was getting dark by now. So we get on the boat. And we didn't want to start the engine again because we we worried that somebody else hear us and come after us again. So we just paddle across the bay, go to the other side, and then the whole night, I I was really afraid because we we sleeping on the beach uh, in the dark, and mosquito was just horrible. And so I dig a hole, bury myself under the sand, wrap my head with with the few uh, shirt that I have and then try to sleep. And then so early in the morning when, when you start hearing all this fishing boat was leaving and, the, and all the guy was like, maybe it's time for us to blend in with them and go out. So, we, so by then we take off all our uniform and there's no more people wearing uh, Vietnamese uh, soldier uniform anymore. So we, 
follow all the fishing boat out and then we were out of the bay. So then um, we were in the boat for probably four or five hours and we can see land on our right all the time, but we just don't know if it's Thailand or not. So we keep going, keep going and finally we said, well, that looked different. So maybe we should, should go in. So we pull in and um, they called the police and the police came in, pick us up and put us in the refugee camp in Thailand. So it was a temporary camp. Um, we, there was tent set up. Uh, they give us a spot um, on the ground um, and then um, they give us some clothes, some uh, food, and then we, we stay there for a couple of weeks. And then they move us to a, a more permanent camp. Um, on, I can't remember what, but near Bangkok, I can't remember which direction. And this is, that's where my uncle and I stay for a year and a half. So we were in the refugee camp for a year and a half. Um, back then there were about 8,000 people in the camp. Um, it, it fenced in, you can't see outside. Um, and, the, and the Thai security, they're pretty mean. <laughs> they're, uh, every morning they play their national anthem and every afternoon they play their national anthem. And while that is going, you have to stand still. You can't do anything. Wherever you are, you need to stand still. If, they, if they've caught you, they beat you. Um, so I was there. Start going to church, uh, Catholic church. That's where I grew up with. Um, beside that, I tried to take some English class, English class uh, but wasn't very serious. Um, and then um, we, everybody that, that get to refugee camp get interviewed by a different country. Um, you can try to select where you want to go, but most of the time, People choose to go to the U.S., but doesn't mean that you get accepted. Um, so I finally, my uncle and I finally get an interview with the U.S. delegation, and we get ac accepted to resettle in the U.S. So um, then they sent us to the Philippines. Uh, there's a refugee camp there for all the people that go to the, the U.S., and we were there for six months. Uh, they kind of, the, this camp is a lot nicer than the one in Thailand uh, because this is um, paid for by the U.S. government. Um, so they, for me, I was, I was uh, almost 17 by then. Uh, so I got put in a, a assimilated high school so you can, you can sign up for class and then take it for a week and then you got to sign up for the next class and take for another week. So, you know, kind of simulate that, you know, you sign up for a class for each semester or something like that. Um, and then um, while we're there, they find a sponsor for you. So uh, we get sponsored to go to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> so that's I'm how- Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we end up in the cold. <laughs> Um, so I went to high school in Omaha, Nebraska for three years. Um, by the time I graduated, I was almost 20. 
I think if I stay one more year, they will kick me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I uh, went to college at Iowa State, uh, get a degree in uh, electrical engineer. Uh, went and and then the, so that's where I became a Christian. Um, so for for the time that I was I was at Iowa State, you know, I I grew up Catholic and I doing the Catholic thing, but it should never make sense to me. Um, so when I was at school, it's my uncle was not around anymore, so I really didn't feel like I have to do anything. Um, my first semester, I was I was going to to Catholic church faithfully and do the confession often and all those things and eventually it didn't make sense to me why and I feel guilty you know go tell the priest that I did this every other week you know and I haven't changed you know <laughs> so eventually eventually I should give up and I was like this doesn't make sense I don't want to go to church anymore so I actually don't go to church I go to church when I go home to Omaha but to me it uh God thinks it didn't make uh, sense anymore so while, while I was at Iowa State, I, I became a resident assistant. So I was in charge of a dorm, um, uh, one of the floor in the dorm um, of like 50 um, guys. And that's when um, I get to meet some of the people from Cornerstone Church in Ames. Um, they have a student ministry then called a Salt Company. Mm. Um, so I get invited there my freshman year and I went, but it's so weird to me that, that I never came back because I'm so used to the, the Catholic thing, even though I don't like the Catholic thing, but this is just like, I've never seen anything like it before. So it just, um, I just never came back, but, uh, in the dorm, I met a lot of, uh, people that go to the salt company. And they and got invited a lot, um, but I just never uh, went back. So my senior year, so by then, so I'm in a resident assistant with all the staff, and my wife Beth was one of the one of the staff. She she's the resident assistant on the dorm, and we know each other from that. Uh, she go to salt company and she and her friend pray for me and all my friends to become Christian and uh, none of us ever just never go to the salt company with with her uh, but my senior year for some reason one after Thanksgiving break I uh, came back to school from Omaha ran into Beth um, at the cafeteria and out of my mouth I said hey can I go to church with you today <laughs> and I didn't you know so she said sure so I went to church that day um, and I you know it was different than the Catholic church um, but the guy um, the guy that speak that day he wasn't a pastor but he wanted an elder uh, he was preaching on uh, uh, giving, giving money. <laughs> he was preaching on giving money. And I was like, somehow it should make sense to me that, you know, why is it 
it's practical, you know, like the Bible does mean something, you know, rather than what, you know, in Catholic church, I felt like I never, I've never seen, I never hear it in a way that applicable to me. Um, but that day when they spoke about how God um, teach you to manage money, you know, said, you know, give, give him the first fruit and then whatever you have left, that's what you can. And, and it makes sense to me for some reason. And then that night I came home, I came back to my room and um, I think, you know, the Holy Spirit was taking over <laughs> and just prodding me to accept Christ. And so that night I took all the videos and magazine that I ever collected, uh, put it in the trash bag, go down to the dumpster and throw it away. Um, and I pray and ask Jesus uh, to become my Lord and Savior. And I can still remember it today that that day, uh, all the weight on my shoulder get lifted. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, and um, he kept me away from that stuff for a long time. Um, I, I think for many years, I never, I never felt like I need to look at any of those stuff. I, I know it came back. It came back in, you know, several times during um, after that, but. Um, but that day and, met, and several years later, I, after that, I felt like God was protecting me while I was uh, growing. Um, so I became a Christian, Beth and I started dating. <laughs> and then uh, we got engaged um, toward the end of my uh, college year there. It took me five years to finish college. So I was there a long time. <laughs> Well, Ames is a great place. So to be there five years, it is cold there though. But yeah. so, at, so when you, when you get to Ames and you're, you're starting to, you know, figure out Ayn as an adult, you know, what this looks like, do you, do you have connections to your family back home? I mean, do they know what, what's becoming of you? I mean, what's. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, my uncle in Omaha, I, so after I became a Christian, um, I told my uncle in Omaha, so he was he was quite upset that um, that I'm don't go to Catholic church anymore. Um, and then eventually, I told my my parents who still live in Vietnam, then um, that I don't go to Catholic church anymore. But they were less concerned than my uncle. The only concern they had was, "Are you sure you're not joining a cult?" You know because. Uh, there, there was quite a few story of, you know, uh, cult thing happened uh, around that time, right? So, but I told them, you know, it's, it's not a cult, but I mean, they, they, they didn't quite understand what I'm going through. Uh, and, and I um, couldn't explain it very well either because they, back then I can't really talk to them very much um there's there's phone you can call them but they don't 
they would have to go somewhere else because they don't have phone at home um, for me to call. So we couldn't talk very much. Um, but my uncle was was uh, quite upset, and but eventually he was okay. He was okay. Um, he yeah he, I I try to explain it to him, uh, but but he um, he just doesn't want to hear about it. I guess he just didn't want to understand it. But eventually, um, I mean after I get engaged with with Beth. Um, we got married in a in a Protestant church. Uh, it's not a Catholic service, but they were they were okay with it. They went and support me. Um, so while I was in school, um, there was never a, a there was never a way to go back to Vietnam because uh, the U.S. have an embargo against Vietnam then. But then I think nineteen. 94 is when Bill Clinton lifted the embargo against the country. So people was able to go back and visit. So that was the first year I went back and visit my, my parents. Um, so it, it was good to see them. The funny story is I came home, I uh, came to Vietnam, went back to Vietnam with ripped jeans. And then, um, then my wife, uh, not my wife, my mom was washing my clothes and she was crying because she thought I was so poor and didn't have money to buy jeans. <laughs> so then my uncle had to explain it to her that that's how kids in the US wear, they wear ripped jeans. When I grew up in Vietnam, when you have holes in your pants, that mean you're poor. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was funny. You know, one, but, one of the things we, we talked about before we started, and, and you've hit on a few of them already, you know, Beth and some others. God is, you know, I love Isaiah 46, 10. He declares the end from the beginning. And through that process, God places people in your life, Ayn, that you're probably looking back now going, that person helped save my life to a degree. You know, whether yeah. you're talking about being a, a refugee of a camp because of war, but we're a refugee of a camp because of sin. And yeah. so along the way, you experience freedom twofold. You think coming to America, well, that's it. No, coming to Jesus, that's it. So when you yeah. think about coming to Jesus and be, having that freedom, like, you know, Beth, and who are some other people that you say, boy, God placed that person in my life at just the right time? Yeah, so after I became a Christian, um, there was a worship leader at the Salt Company um, student ministry. So I... I was interested in playing um, on the worship team there. I should never good enough to play there, I guess. But um, I, I I was trying to to uh, train myself um, to get better. So he he would take a few of us and try to mentor us. So uh, besides his music, he um, kind of walked through us through a lot of Bible study time and things like that. So. Uh, he invests quite a, a lot of time in us. Um, so uh, his his name is um, Todd Wallace. He's he's not, he's not a worship leader anymore, but he's one of the campus pastor in uh, in Iowa. Uh, but yeah, he was 
he graduated as a mechanical engineer, but never do anything with it. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he uh, helped me there. And then when we get married, uh, they, um, they kind of guide us um, because they get married before us. They were a little, a few years older. Um, so those people, um, and then, you know, church, other Christian, uh, there's people that um, from the salt company, you know, group of guys that, that I hang out with um, that help, help me through that. And then when I start working at IBM, there's a bunch of engineers from um, Iowa State also uh, up in Minnesota, and we was able to get together um, and uh, have our, our study together. And since we, we came from salt companies, we kind of used to the way that we encourage each other. And um, that's, how, that's how I get the support. You know, we talk about in the beginning, God going before us and, you know, there were decisions made that some of them you had no choice in some of them. You just said, sure, I'll lay down in the boat. You know, y'all go to the refugee camp. I'll take an English class. All those things, though, I believe God is in the details of our life. Yeah, and, and, and that that's the story you're telling here is these details. It's like Abraham making a 14 year decision later on Hagar to he finally gets to have Isaac. These are 14, 25, 30 year decisions that are made. Yeah in a moment's notice and yeah. um man what an incredible thank you i want to thank you for taking time tonight i don't know how many podcasts you've been on but you did a fantastic <laughs> job brother thank you for sharing your story i i really appreciate it yeah um which just one one more thing like i uh, one thing i want to share it um the details about so when i get to refugee camp um I have to get that gold ring back. <laughs> we forgot about the gold ring. Good anyway. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found that gold ring later. Did but, you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, everybody was waiting for it because we were hungry. <laughs> um, did you no, have to, I, did you have to retrieve it? It's, I, I mean, to, I have to retrieve it yeah. in the field somewhere. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my kids always laugh when I told them about that story. But uh, I I was want to share the 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 part where where because to to leave the country you have to pay these people, but you can't pay you don't want to pay them ahead of time. You have to guarantee that you get to Thailand, then they get paid. Mm -hmm. So you, typically you get to Thailand. I wrote my parents a letter that I made it to the refugee camp and then they have to pay these people but the government is watching every move you can't really go and just say yeah here's some money thanks for the service um because they'll they'll tie you to the because i forgot to tell you that it's illegal to leave the country so if you get caught they put you in jail so so that's why everything is secretive. Um, so um, my parents would have to go to a friend of a friend and give that person the money so that th there's no tie back to them. So that person can travel somewhere else and pay this person the money. So yeah, that's a, that's a crazy thing of growing up in a communist country. There's so many things that I could tell people that 
social socialism is not the way to go you know if you if you think if you think you want it go and live in one of those countries become the citizen of that country and see how you like it then you can tell me that that's what you want but if you just sit and comfy in this free country and say i want socialism i don't believe you uh, i don't believe that people know what they're talking about amen that's the perfect way to end it right there i thank you for that <laughs> thank you men for listening to or watching the pursuit of manliness podcast if you will leave a five star review on itunes that just continues to help Get the word out about the Pursuit of Manliness podcast. Men, if you are in the herd, we are going to continue our conversation over there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Let's keep pursuing biblical manliness.